Placemakers is made possible by J.P. Morgan Chase. J.P. Morgan Chase is committed to expanding access to opportunity for all people and advancing economic growth in all places. Learn more about their global commitment by going to jpmorganchase.com. 25 miles outside Washington, D.C., across the Maryland border, you'll find a small town so idyllic, so iconic, you'll swear it's straight out of an old-fashioned movie. It's called Kentland's. And the day I visit, let's do a little walking. Okay. Longtime resident Mike Watkins shows me around. So we'll go for a little walk. Strolling down wide brick sidewalks along narrow, tree-lined streets, Mike and I pass historic-looking homes with porches out front and garages out back. Elegant Victorians, cozy cottages, brick townhouses, all built close to one another on humble-sized lots. So the houses you see are pulled up close to the street. So the porches are within conversation distance of the sidewalk. So it makes it great when you're walking down the street to have a chat with the neighbor. Joggers stride around glittering bodies of water with names like Inspiration Lake and Lake Placid. And no matter where you are, you're always within walking distance. So here we are emerging into what looks like a a retail area. Of downtown. Right, this is our main street. So the building directly in front of us is an age-restricted senior apartment building. And then across the street are shops with offices or apartments on the second floor. And quite a mix of shops. The beer and wine store, the barber shop. The music shop, the chocolate maker, the dentist, the florist, most within sight of Kentland's good old-fashioned town square. Well, the pavilion in the middle uh, serves the farmer's market. And during the week, uh, the yoga class or the tai chi class will meet outdoors here. And then the lawn you see beside it is used uh, for, as the market's grown, it's taken over that lawn. But it's also just a place for uh, kids to play. As parents are eating at one of the cafes nearby, they just kind of let the kids, you know, have a little bit of a run in the park. So, with the exception, I guess, of the yoga and tai chi, Ketlands is kind of like your Bedford Falls and It's a Wonderful Life, or your Mandrake Falls and Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. But here's the thing. For all of Ketlands' traditional, timeless charm, Fewer than 30 years ago... What was here before? This charming community? A soybean field. Yeah, it was was a farm. It didn't even exist. I'm Rebecca Shear, and from Slate Magazine, this is Placemakers. Stories about the spaces we inhabit and the people who shape them. Today, the recreation of small-town America through the planning and design movement known as New Urbanism. Now, in a way, new urbanism is actually old urbanism, or at least the kind of urbanism we saw pre-World War II, before the car became king in this country. So new urbanism embraces walkable communities with traditional architecture and easy access to independent businesses and green space. In just a bit, we'll talk with one of the founders of new urbanism, a woman who took one look at all that post-war suburban sprawl and decided to find an antidote. Her firm wound up designing hundreds of these compact, walkable new urbanism developments all over the world, including, yes, Kentlands, Maryland. And that guy who showed me around Kentlands, Mike Watkins, he was actually instrumental in the town's development. Mike's an architect by training, and as he explained as we strolled down Main Street, he was the town architect for Kentlands when it was designed and constructed in the late 1980s. What does it mean to be a town architect? My role here as town architect was to work with the various designers to see that the work they were doing was compatible with the work the other designers were doing. Which is not to say the same by any stretch. In fact, we value variety. 
but we do want the, the work of each individual architect to support the principles on which the design is based. We really want this place to work like a community, and many of the designers that started working here had never worked in a place that was deliberately about community life, and certainly pedestrian life. So this was bringing back many of the old ways of doing things, but for reasons that are still important today, not simply a nostalgia trip. In a way, new urbanism actually has a lot in common with what Jane Jacobs was encouraging for cities back in the 1960s. We talked about that in our first episode of Placemakers. Jacobs was this writer and urban thinker who wrote the legendary book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities, right? And in her writing, she stressed the importance of eyes on the street, the intricate sidewalk ballet, the cheerful hurly-burly, all these things that, as she put it, make people want to come into the city and to linger there. And in fact, one of the founders of New Urbanism... I am Liz Plater Zyberg, architect and town planner. ...says Jane Jacobs was highly influential to the architectural movement. Well, Jane Jacobs' book was written when we were in college. So her descriptions of neighborhoods as places of walkability, of pedestrian comfort, of people interacting on the sidewalk or in shops, of the diversity of old neighborhoods certainly became embedded in our thinking. When Liz Plater-Zyberg says our thinking, she's referring to the other pioneers of new urbanism, including her husband, fellow architect and town planner Andres Duani. Liz and Andres founded their own firm. Duani Plater-Zyberg and Company, uh, actually recently renamed DPZ Partners. They've written books, they've won awards, and their work has garnered all sorts of accolades. The New York Times, for one, called New Urbanism the most important collective architectural movement in the United States in the past 50 years. Time magazine called the resort town of Seaside, DPZ's very first project on the Gulf of Mexico and Florida, the most astounding design achievement of its era. Which isn't to say DPZ's work has been free from criticism. If you Google New Urbanism, you'll come up with articles like Why New Urbanism Fails, And why is new urbanism so gosh darn creepy? People who say new urbanism is overproduced, artificial, not to mention prohibitive for moderate to lower income households. After all, in Kentlands, the average townhouse is listed for more than $500,000. A single family home, more than $800,000. And as the community gets more popular, especially with people commuting to work in DC, those prices are on the rise. We'll talk more about these kinds of issues with new urbanism in just a bit, but first, it's important to understand how this movement got to where it is now. Liz Plater-Zyberg has been with it from the early days, of course, and as she spoke with me from her office in Miami, it started to sound like her upbringing made her involvement in new urbanism almost inevitable. See, like Jane Jacobs, Liz grew up in small-town Pennsylvania, but often traveled to the big city. And maybe there's something about traveling from the periphery to the center that makes a person see the urban landscape with fresh eyes. Paoli was the end of the main line, as it was known, and uh, that was the main train line, one of the main commuter lines into Philadelphia. So I did my whole, all of my youthful activities were done by either train or bus from Paoli to um, school, the swim club, the dentist, the Academy of Music on Saturday mornings for children's concerts. And I would say that that small town life, walking into town, walking to the train station, have been very influential in my career after that. Little did I know. 
So it wasn't like at the time you thought, ooh, this is a nice way to live. When I grow up, I want to promote this kind of living. Well, I think I wasn't thinking in those terms at all. It just seemed normal to be able to walk to the market, to walk to the train, um, to take public transportation to school, um, or to access the cultural facilities uh, in downtown Philadelphia in that way. So that was a kind of um, regional picture, you know, of living in a small town, but being part of a metropolitan area that, of course, the new urbanism has, in a sense, revived um, as a valid way of structuring our ever-growing metropolitan areas. If we fast forward some years, uh, now here you are at DPZ, and I was looking on your website, and you like to say that you believe great places add to the sum of human happiness. So Liz, what do you feel is the connection there between, you know, where we are and how happy we are? Oh, that's a big question. You know, I think so much of our uh, daily life is connected to place and the experience of place, Um, whether it's family life uh, surrounded by uh, community or lack of community, school and work life, um, and how that relates to Um, a community of people, but also um, the physical environment around us. There are just so many aspects of place and physical environment, whether it's built or natural, um, to which I think we uh, we have an ever more evidence-based understanding of how how places affect us, um, affect our behavior, affect our well-being, that's um, not to say that people can't overcome negative conditions, which many people do, um, but I think um, many people recognize and try to place themselves in a situation when, if they have that privilege, um, to enable place to be supportive of their life, of their values, uh, of daily life. So the kind of place that that supports that and promotes that, what does it look like? Because you've said that DPZ creates what you call benevolent urban places. So what is it that makes an urban environment particularly benevolent? Well, it may look different depending on where you are, Um, and it should. Um, It should be related to the geography, climate, and history of a place, of an area. But there is one key aspect, which is the community of people that are within walking distance. You know, we live in a in an age in which many people will say, well, my community is um, international or my community is on the internet or it's attached to a hashtag or whatever. Um, but the community of place is very important to people of all ages, um, who your neighbors are, especially when there are children involved who have a, a much um, a shorter trajectory Um, than many of us, or um, when we get older and we are more place-bound or want to be place-bound, then that community of people that are within walking distance, whether it's resident neighbors or the shopkeepers whose um, establishments we frequent, you know, it is the the kind of small-town atmosphere that makes that quality of place. You know, I I couldn't... uh, Some of the most touching descriptions of community of place emerged from New Orleans uh, after Hurricane Katrina when people realized that they would not, might not be returning to the neighborhood where they had 
established um, a kind of interdependence. The social scientists call it interdependence, uh, in which people of all types, abilities, uh, living close to each other, were helping each other in various ways, enjoying each other in various ways. So when you were starting this firm with your husband, Andres Duani, what were you seeing around you in terms of building patterns, development patterns that you didn't like, that you wanted to change? Well, we saw an automobile-oriented, low-density fabric um, that seemed unsustainable economically in the long run. Our knowledge of the history of cities had taught us that cities had always been compact, compact for, um, well, for reasons of defense, but also reasons of economy. And so this somehow seemed... Um, out of sync with all of history. And then we got to know what life um, in the suburbs was like, and we saw the, the great effort that people made to develop community, to have a sense of community through, you know, driving children everywhere to soccer, to after-school activities, to uh, the importance of focal places like churches. But what was missing was the kind of daily interaction that daily life might provide to you in a small town or in an urban neighborhood uh, when you could walk to places and when children could be monitored or teenagers could be monitored by adults who knew them uh, informally, the kind of informal relationships of community. So I think that's what started us thinking that it was worth looking at um, or worth trying to uh, suggest alternate modes of developing cities. And, it, you know, we were lucky. One of our first clients, Charleston Place, was um, an investor who, uh, when we realized that we were going to be proposing something that was very different than its surroundings in its suburban setting, uh, he said, you know, that's fine because all the market studies are telling us that the people want the stuff that's being built uh, around us, but I am sure that there are some people who are outliers and would appreciate um, quite the opposite. And that's the market that I will, um, I'm willing to risk addressing that market. And that was an important lesson because we understood um, that that kind of diversity could be uh, addressed and that likely there would be some response to suggesting that we could build neighborhoods with a sense of place or small towns with a great sense of community. And so I think we were surprised by the enormous response to that. It wasn't just the outliers who appreciated it, but a great many people. It was resonant with a great many people. And part of the reason for that may have been how accessible Liz and her firm, DPZ, have tried to make new urbanism. When a new development is in the works, they try to involve as many people as possible in the planning process through something called a charrette. Maybe you've heard of it. Basically, it's this comprehensive session or series of sessions where residents, planners, officials, all sorts of stakeholders get together and collaborate on a vision for development. They bounce around ideas, they do presentations, they give and get feedback. Basically, DPZ tries to give everyone a voice. But still, there are those who just don't buy the whole new urbanism thing. People who don't like how planners such as Liz Plater-Zyberg and Andres Duani, to quote one critic, make a fetish of their debts to the past. 
We'll hear more about this pushback and find out which new urbanist town played a surreal starring role in a memorable Hollywood film after the break. Hey, I'm Brian Babylon. Placemakers is made possible by J.P. Morgan Chase. Economic recovery is no easy task. In many cities, incomes are shrinking and families and communities are struggling. J.P. Morgan Chase is committed to helping solve the problem. J.P. Morgan Chase is deploying $1 billion towards programs focused on expanding access to opportunities and advancing economic growth around the world. J.P. Morgan Chase is helping to accelerate growth in Seattle at the oldest housing project in Washington State, Yesler Terrace. Chuck Weinstock, VP of Community Development Banking, shares J.P. Morgan Chase's approach to combining philanthropy and lending. J.P. Morgan Chase's financial involvement in Yester Terrace has taken two forms. One has been through our foundation, which totals $2.1 million. And secondly, has been through our affordable housing lending. And we have closed loans on the first three buildings as part of Yester Terrace. So really between lending and the philanthropic, a really robust financial involvement in this early stage. J.P. Morgan Chase is focused on helping all communities. Learn more by going to jpmorganchase.com. From Slate Magazine, it's Placemakers. I'm Rebecca Shear. We're talking today with Liz Plater-Zyberg, an award-winning architect and planner whose firm, DPZ Partners, has helped develop more than 300 projects across the world, everywhere from Mexico, Brazil, and the Philippines to Turkey, India, and Egypt, not to mention Australia, China, Russia. And what these developments all have in common is that they're designed with walking, not cars, front and center. Along with her husband, Andres Duwani, Liz helped found the movement known as New Urbanism. She and Andres were instrumental in starting a nonprofit devoted to its tenets of planning and design. The Congress for New Urbanism, as it's known, now has upwards of 2,500 members. New Urbanism is meant to be an alternative to the suburban sprawl that spread across this country after World War II. And as we heard before the break, 20-some miles outside Washington, D.C., there's a new urbanist community in Maryland. It's called Kentlands, and DPZ developed it in the late 1980s. I recently got a tour from longtime resident and former town architect Mike Watkins. I heard a rumor that um, when the, the, the sales office first opened in Kentlands, people camped out overnight to get a good place in line. Well, they did do that, actually, yeah. Kentlands is the kind of place where you can stroll down the sidewalk and wave hi to your neighbors sipping lemonade on their porch, and then pick up your dry cleaning pop into the barbershop for a trim, or stop at the corner cafe for a cup of joe. One of the nice things about the neighborhood, I think, is that not only do we have a mix of housing types, but we also have a mix of uses here. So, for example, we met at my office, and I live right upstairs, which is a pretty nice commute in the Washington, D.C. area. <laughs> but I'm also able to uh, walk to the gym or walk to the, to the little breakfast cafe. Um, or to a grocery store or a movie theater. There's about three dozen, four dozen restaurants in the neighborhood that we can walk to. But, as we also mentioned earlier, not everyone has been so thrilled with this kind of development. That article I brought up before, Why is New Urbanism So Gosh Darn Creepy? 
It appeared on the design and tech website Gizmodo in 2014, and in it, writer Alyssa Walker is talking about Buena Vista, Colorado, which isn't a DPZ project, but its developers were inspired by the ideals of new urbanism. Walker says, and I quote, They had indeed built a lovely place that seemed to be the walkable, pedestrian-friendly neighborhood they intentioned, but it all seemed so contrived. What bothered me the most was that instead of improving and integrating with the pretty, if well-worn, historic Main Street a few blocks away, they essentially created this faux Wild West by way of pottery barn kayakers ghetto. Walker goes on to talk about the edge of Buena Vista, where you can literally see the sidewalk end before it turns into a dirt path in an empty lot. She writes that it is, quote, as symbolic of a demarcation as you could get. That is old and this is new. That is real, and this is fake. And actually, back in 1988... Good morning! Morning! That idea was taken to the extreme... Good morning! ...in a certain Hollywood movie. Oh, and in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. This you might recognize is The Truman Show, starring Jim Carrey as, yes, Truman, a happy-go-lucky insurance salesman who, unwittingly, is starring in his own reality show, and has been ever since the day he was born. Morning, Truman! Morning, Spencer! Hey, Pluto. No, no, no! Truman resides in Sea Haven, this idyllic town by the sea, a picture-perfect village that, as he eventually learns, is far too perfect. It's actually a giant set piece, surrounded by this massive dome that generates astonishingly convincing effects, like the sun, the sky, the weather. At the very end of The Truman Show, Truman is out sailing in what he doesn't yet realize is a totally fake sea, when, all of a sudden, he hits a wall. Like, literally, his boat crashes into the edge of the dome, that protective barrier that's been covering his native town of Seahaven ever since he was born. And the thing about Seahaven, this far-too-good-to-be-true town, The Truman Show's director, Peter Ware, decided to find a real-life town to play the role of Seahaven, if you will. And do you know which town he picked? None other than DPZ's very first project, Seaside, Florida. So when I spoke with Liz plater Zyberk, I simply had to ask, was she flattered? Insulted? I mean, how did she feel about her development being cast as the ultimate feel-good pseudo-town? You know, we didn't take it as a critique. We saw the film being made, and uh, it was interesting to watch it being made, and also to... Um, hear one of the stories of its making in which the downtown buildings and sidewalks and so on were painted up and, and made more colorful and they were somewhat tarted up, I would say. And we asked, um, what was that about? And the artistic director of the movie said that there was a disconnect between the houses, the little wooden houses and the four-story Uh, modern buildings of the downtown. And so um, I thought that was very interesting that the film continuity required a certain kind of um, physical continuity. And Seaside, of course, had to conform to that, even though there was... So most people wouldn't think that there's such a great diversity of architecture there that it would appear to be discontinuous in a movie, but it was for The Truman Show. Well, something I find so interesting about Seaside, as well as some of your other projects, is you brought on many different designers to do the buildings instead of just one. Why was that? Well, uh, you know, I think we had looked at enough small towns and, uh, of course, our own 
our ongoing admiration of great uh, places, older places in particular, whether in the U.S. or in Europe, and we understood that they were made of a great deal of diversity. We were intrigued by the amount of harmony that these places had at the same time that there was a great deal of diversity, building by building. And after seeing Charleston Place emerge, which was a housing development in the suburbs of Boca Raton, where we had tried to mimic an urban fabric with a sense of place, but we realized as we had designed all the houses that it had perhaps too much uniformity. And so uh, the idea emerged in Seaside that it would uh, make it possible for many people to participate in the design. So it really was this um, trying to replicate in a shorter amount of time, in a compressed amount of time, the diversity and harmony of places that have been built across history. So Seaside and Ketlands are, are sort of early examples of new urbanism. Has it, has it changed much since then? They're still valid examples. It's uh, certainly evolved. And there is now, I would say, um, a body of knowledge and experience which really can relate to almost any kind of condition globally. Um, which has to do with the exchange of information, the, the criticism that we very freely give to each other, the kind of um, examination of um, successes and failures that the Congress does, as well as listening to its critics. What do critics of new urbanism say? What are they finding fault with? What are they, what are they picking at? Um, you know, I think especially at the beginning, um, there's probably less of this now, but there was a great misunderstanding about what we were doing. People would just look at a place that was made of traditional architecture and say, well, it's really a, back, a step backwards and it doesn't recognize that society and culture and technology are moving on. And especially among architects who were fearful of being asked to design in traditional modes. But the charter for the new urbanism says very clearly that style is not an issue. It is an issue because it contributes to the character of a place, but it's not any one particular style. Architects were worried about having their creativity constrained. Other people uh, criticized the movement for individual examples, places that were not as diverse as we hoped they would be, that transit was not being immediately built for these places, you know, that, yes, they're transit-oriented, but there's no transit. Of course, that's not the fault of the development, but um, I think most of the new urbanism is transit-ready. So the, there was really a variety of different kinds of critique that were always about a partial understanding of it. Much of early new urbanist communication, uh, in fact, was criticizing the suburbs. Uh, many people took that to be criticizing the people who lived there, but it really was intending to criticize the physical setup of suburban development. So the reactions were anything from, yes, you're so right, to people who resented that kind of criticism, especially if they were among the producers of those places, and sometimes residents who might feel personally attacked. But, um, you know, I think 
we're, we're now at a point in which we can look back over three decades, really four decades, of work that has built on itself. And it's a tremendous buildup of knowledge and experience. And you, I think people may not under, I worry that people don't understand how useful that is and how much there is to build on. In fact, I worry that there is so much knowledge and experience that it's a high bar for entry. And we have always tried to say it's not rocket science. It's something that everybody can get to know. And we need to keep, keep it as accessible as possible um, because we understand the benefits for community, for the environment, even the economic benefits of working in this way. And so, you know, I think that's something we need to focus on. How, in my world, that's a kind of definition of culture or civilization. The good news is that we've all done a, a great deal of trying to make it accessible, keeping it simple, but also writing the books, participating in conferences and communication with many people, not only in our professions, but with the public audience to help people understand that the built environment, it's not some kind of elite professional endeavor in which only the experts should participate, but everybody who uses it on a daily basis, which means everybody, um, has a great deal of knowledge and experience about it also, and that that should always be part of building and rebuilding places. And say what you will about new urbanism. Maybe you love it, maybe you hate it, maybe it gives you Truman Show-esque heebie-jeebies. But what Liz plater Zyberg says about everybody being involved in how a place gets built, gets shaped, that's kind of what this podcast, Placemakers, has been all about. All of these stories we've brought you about, as we like to say, the spaces we inhabit and the people who shape them, there's been this running theme of how these spaces, these places, they should be built with everybody, real residents, real community members, in mind. No matter who those people are or where they live. You don't have to run 100 miles away from anything because you think you're going to what is better. Move in an era like this and make better. And like I said, our, our thing is it's not a black thing, it's the right thing. And that's the movement that we're pushing right now. You're talking with people who have been abandoned by virtually every institution that in theory is supposed to be helping them. I think we stigmatize transportation in the United States. We've said, okay, the bus is for poor people. The rail, well, that's acceptable for wealthier people. The car is a real status symbol. Uh, we knew we wanted to reintegrate families into the broader social, economic, and psychological part of America. We've been contributing to this community, to our state, since we've been here. Before we say goodbye, I want to leave you with one last thought, care of the woman who kicked this whole series off. I'm talking about, yes, Jane Jacobs. Because looking back at all of our stories so far, I can't help but feel this one line from the death and life of great American cities rings especially true. As Jacobs writes in that oft-quoted classic, cities have the capability of providing something for everybody, only because and only when they are created by everybody.
Placemakers is a production of Slate Magazine and is produced by Mia Lobel, Diana Douglas, and Michael Volo, and edited by Julia Barton. Our researcher is Matthew Schwartz. Eric Shimalonis does our mixing and musical scoring. Our theme was composed by Robin Hilton. Steve Lichtai is our executive producer. I'm Rebecca Shear. For more information about today's show and other episodes of Placemakers, go to slate.com slash placemakers. And you can drop us a line at placemakers at slate.com. We've become bored with watching actors give us phony emotions. We're tired of pyrotechnics and special effects. While the world he inhabits is, in some respects, counterfeit, there's nothing fake about Truman himself. No scripts, no cue cards. It isn't always Shakespeare, but it's genuine. It's a life. Hey guys, yep, I'm still here. Those of you still around, I want to ask you a small favor. Here at Placemakers, we want to learn more about you, our listeners, and your opinions. We know you guys have strong opinions, so we created a quick survey that we'd love for you to take. If you fill it out, you'll automatically be entered for a chance to win a $150 Amazon gift card, and you'll be helping us continue to create content that makes your ears and your brain happy. To fill out the survey, go to slate.com slash survey2. That's slate.com slash survey2. Thank you.